Hello, I'm Jane Martinson and you're listening to The Guardian's Focus podcast. Today is the centenary of International Women's Day and to mark the occasion, we're publishing a list of the 100 most inspirational women. We'll explore why feminism still matters 100 years after the first International Women's Day, where role models are vital and where they're missing, and what the big challenges are still to be overcome. Joining me in the studio is the author of The New Feminism and Living Dolls, Natasha Walter, and the journalist and Channel 4 news presenter, Samira Ahmed. Welcome to both of you. We felt that the list needed to celebrate inspiration rather than money or the way someone looks. There will be some controversial choices on the list and some big names that aren't even there. Samira, you were one of the 11 strong panel that went through the thousands of nominations from readers. Would you like to explain what you think makes a woman inspirational for the purposes of this list? Uh, Jane, it was a fascinating experience because, as you say, with thousands of nominations, you get both a sense of the women who are in the headlines right now, and you've got a lot of nominations for people who are essentially uh, celebrities. Uh, but it was also an opportunity to think, looking back over one's own, own life, you know, who were the women who stood out and why? And you know, one of the most controversial names on, on today's list is Lady Thatcher, and I... I was born in 68, so I grew up very much, you know, um, under her um, prime ministerialship. And I was just struck by how much of the um, negative attitudes that she attracted seemed to make a lot of her being a woman and the handbagging and so on. And what I thought was very important in the discussion we had and, and how we helped define what does influential mean, it was the fact that as a woman, she was breaking new ground. Um, she was challenging the traditional way of doing things. And whether or not one agreed with her, it's the idea of women going where women hadn't gone before and making an impact that needed to be recognised. And, and that was really the decision that mattered to me. I think, I mean, from the sort of editorial point of view, we felt at The Guardian that we needed a list that really um, said something about our values in terms of in- inspiring other women. But we're also taking a very sort of broad uh, look at women who live across the globe, who do a whole range of different things. And although she is very controversial... Um, and one of the um, one of the things we looked at was how you actually help other women, which I think was the the most heated debate, wasn't it, on that panel? Has Margaret Thatcher actually helped other women? Her cabinets were obviously full of men, um, but in terms of providing an inspiration to a generation like us, uh, you know, lots of people were saying it was amazing when I was a child, actually having a prime minister who's a woman. And crucially, that she, she challenged a lot of orthodoxies. And mm. um, something that um, a former Tory um, um, candidate said to me was the thing about her was her kind of originally a Methodist background, although she changed her, her kind of... Uh, Christian attitude. She she grew up in a tradition that was nonconformist. It was about challenging um, mm. the traditional way of doing things, and then that's a very feminist idea, isn't it? That just because things have always been one way, it doesn't mean they always have to be. And a lot of the filmmaking around her, like The Long Walk to Finchley, um, was about her challenging the post-war generation of war heroes who were all standing as MPs. And she had a long fight to become an MP in the first place, and we yeah. forget that. And being her own woman, you know, not necessarily being a woman that Guardian readers would uh, would vote for, but being her own woman in the way she stood out. Um, well, this is the 100th uh, International Women's Day, and the picture was very different when it all began. It's 1908. Oppression and inequality against women spur them to become active campaigners for change. 15,000 women marched through New York City demanding shorter hours, better pay and voting rights. 
1911, International Women's Day is honoured for the first time on the 19th of March, with rallies campaigning for women's rights to work, vote, be trained, to hold public office and end discrimination. Later that month, a tragic fire in New York City takes the lives of more than 140 working women, most of them Italian and Jewish immigrants, drawing attention to horrendous working conditions in the United States. 1917, Russian women begin a strike for bread and peace in response to the deaths of over two million Russian soldiers in war. Opposed by political leaders, the women continued to strike until the Tsar was forced to abdicate and women were granted the right to vote. 1928, women in Britain win the right to vote on the same terms as men. 1948, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights enshrines the equal rights of men and women. Natasha, back in 1911, the first uh, International Women's Day, there was a long list of things that women were demanding. Um, the right to work, to vote, some really basic, basic demands. Why do you think International Women's Day is still significant 100 years on? Well, I think one of the reasons it is significant is that it helps us to look back at the, at the great legacy of feminism. And let's not forget that. I think, I think that package was, was actually quite inspiring because it, it does help to remind us, if we look back, that feminism has achieved an awful lot. You know, um, I think often it's quite easy for feminists to get quite depressed, quite downhearted by how much still has to be done. And if you look back at the last 100 years, as you say, you know, these rights that have been won, these rights to vote, to hold political office, um, to be employed on the same terms as men, the right to equal pay and so on, these are vital rights. And they were won by feminists, by women mm. coming together, working in solidarity. Um, so let's remember that uniquely happy history that we've got as feminists on International Women's Day. But of course, we're also coming together on International Women's Day always to demand further change and to look at what we haven't got. So let's also, let's not hold, lose sight of that. Mm. It's really important to kind of hold the balance, I think. Um, and if we look at the world around us now and the way that women are still subject to so much more violence, men so much more poverty than men, the ways that so many women across the world are still denied even a basic education, and that women, you know, even in this country where we've had this great history of feminism, um, that goes back even before, obviously, those those hundred years of International Women's Day, everything that still needs to be done here, the inequality in Parliament, the, the greater poverty of women. Um, and for me, also, I think it's a time to look at the culture around us, the sexism entrenched in the culture around us. And can I just pay tribute to your issue um, today with the inspiration of women? Because I think one of the things that is vital um, for us to do is to show younger women um, that they can raise their aspirations, they can raise their ambitions. And it's really important, I think, for them to have a range of great role models inspiring them. And I would really kind of support um, Natasha. I think one of the things that, that concerns me is that we, we kid ourselves in a way that there's been inevitable progress on mm. issues around feminism. And I think there's a lot that can be under threat. Um, and sometimes I, I do open newspapers, I look at news coverage, and I think, what decade am I living in? And um, today, for example... Um, I was watching all the excitement about who's designing Kate Middleton's wedding dress. And I can remember in the early 80s, you know, when, when Diana got married. Mm. And somehow then, you know, 
we weren't that far advanced from a stage where women actually did stop working after they got married in certain professions. Um, I think stewardesses weren't allowed to work after they got married up until the 70s in some professions, um, in some countries, including Britain. And here we are now talking in the same way as if marriage is a career end in itself. And um, I'm just concerned that what proportion of news coverage is events like you know, yeah. the royal wedding, uh, and what proportion of women are actually being covered in the same way as we cover, you know, politics and science overall. I just feel women are mm. perhaps categorised in a way that we don't realise is, is potentially quite damaging, quite limiting. Well, one of the reasons for doing the list was so many lists. I, you know, for years I did the Media Guardian 100, and in the last year we struggled, we had 18% for women, and that's in media, mm. which is, you know, you wouldn't would look at media as, a, as, as a particularly being, woman-friendly. Exactly. It was, you know, yeah. it was really hard. And then you just do a list like this where you're actually looking at women. You think there are actually so many fantastic women doing completely different things. Um, one disappointing area, though, was how difficult it was to find business women who fit the criteria. Earlier on, I spoke to one of the few that did make the list. She was the co-founder of LastMinute.com and now the government's digital champion, Martha Lane Fox. And I started by asking her why there were so few women in the boardroom. I think it's a couple of things. I think that we're not... I think it's bound up to me in a huge number of complex things around corporate governance. But I think that we're not very bold very often in selecting non-exec directors. And so I think that there are many, many spectacular women out there. Women running charities, running women running social enterprises, women doing all sorts of things. But they would never, I think, either necessarily put themselves forward to be on the board of a business or be considered to be on the board of a business kind of both ways round. And I think we could be a bit braver in thinking about the broader skills that people can bring, if, even if they don't have direct kind of business experience. You know, running a complex charity is a hugely complicated business and uh, incredibly tough in terms of managing cash, raising money, complex operations. So that that might be the first thing I'd say. Then the second thing would be, it is still an old boys network. And I don't mean it's because it's full of old boys and I don't want to sound kind of hysterical or, you know, oh, it's just a club because it isn't. It's much more nuanced than that. And there are many, many fabulous people on FTSE 100 boards and fabulous men and fabulous women. It's, it's nothing like that. But I do think that it's a much more closed group than I'd perhaps realised being outside it. It does rely on uh, people being part of a kind of network of people. And if you don't try and put yourself in that network or if you don't actively seek it out, then it is just really hard to penetrate it. We're still, you could argue, relatively early in this journey. 50 years ago, there were probably no women. And in another 50 years, I think it would have got better, not worse. Taken quite a long time. Yeah, it takes a long time. It takes a really long what, time. What do you think can be done? I mean, you've talked about um, the recruitment issues that with, with sort of people um, appointing in their own image, that yeah. there's a bit of an old boys club. What, what can be done to actually sort it out? I did go round and circle the bit for a while, thinking about, you know, is it really important to have quotas, to have kind of put demands on... Uh, organizations and I thought no actually I don't necessarily think that is the right way to go and talking to a lot of very eminent women like Alison Carnworth who is the chairman of the Butcher Business Land Securities she thinks she's very much against that kind of idea. Mm. Why? Because I think she thinks it does it could lead to uh, more of a negative backward step than a positive forward step. I think that the shortlist 
that is a really good place to start. Because I well, think that said that FTSE 100 firms should set a target of uh, 25% yeah, by Which is way too low, obviously. I think it should be 75%, mm. uh, and mm. it could be much more aggressive and punchy. But that's, I think the shortlist is quite an interesting place to start, because I think that then you are really forced to think across more interesting industries, perhaps more interesting, as I say, you know, hybrid organisations like social enterprises or in the broader world. And then, you know, it doesn't mean you have to exclusively female this, it doesn't mean you're exclusively mm. appointing women, but if you're skewing it and you're forcing that kind of look, then I think that does help. What do you think the impact is longer term, I suppose, finally, of having so few business leaders? Um, you know, what what is the impact of that? It matters because, you know, and I'm not saying for one second that businesses are better if they're run by women or worse if they're run by women but women make up 46 percent of the workforce surely should be striving to have that reflected in the makeup of the leadership of those businesses you know you make better decisions by collaborating with more different types of people it's really important that we as a society i think strive to reflect the makeup of our society in the ways that we lead it and it's no more complicated than that that was martha lane fox Equal pay isn't being achieved even in the West, let alone the developing world. Samira, why do you think that is? I think what was really interesting that Martha said there was how it took time to realise how hard it was kind of breaking through Mm. and and that there were so few women at senior levels. And I think one of the the big issues is as a young woman, I think all of us take for granted that in theory we have equal pay. And I think often the the, the differential isn't that bad at the start. It's only later on um, that you start to realise how these entrenched attitudes, particularly at senior level, start to impact. And then you really see the difference in equal pay. But by then, in some ways, you could argue it's too late. And in a way, I was, I, was, I was both inspired and actually slightly depressed that someone of the calibre of, of, um, of Martha feels that she doesn't really have a, a solution at this stage. Um, mm. One of the, the, I mean, the two things that I've learned in the last few years when I've interviewed business people is that you can have the idea of a positive incentive. So Opportunity Now is a British organisation based very much in the city, which has a fantastic annual award ceremony, rewards companies for having, you know, um, up to 50% women on their boards and big companies like Marks and Spencer and Sainsbury's and um, banks and, and, you know, public bodies too are proud to be part of that. I think that's a very positive Mm. way to try and change culture. But I also met a senior executive once from an American firm who said that actually in America, where employment laws are very, very tough, Women have to make tough decisions very early on. And I don't want to get sucked into a whole kind of having it all thing, but but particularly with the lack of maternity pay. Women who are executives and choose to to remain in the workforce, they go back to work within three months. And once they've made that tough decision, actually, Mm. they tend to rise much higher and there is more equality. But it's come at a kind of cost. I'm not saying that's a solution, but it's interesting Mm. that so far they seem to have achieved better rates of equality at senior levels than than Britain has. Do you think, um, Natasha, that women's careers in the UK are being set back by having children? Absolutely. And I think it's really important to raise that at this point. I mean, you can do um, what you want to sort of in the workplace in a sort of bubble in terms of the quotas. I'm in favour of quotas or shortlists or, as you say, positive incentives, prizes for the, you know, for the... um, equal opportunity employer but but basically I think you just have to look at how the the workplace operates in the wider society Mm. and what's happening in the family and this isn't just about women changing it isn't just about women stepping up and you know thrusting their way into the boardroom and um, you know getting balls as it were this is also about the part that men play at home um, and about how 
we can develop workplaces that are more family friendly and we can encourage men to take um, a more equal role at home. And I think it's, you know, we do have to look at the, at the wider society if we're really going to drive through changes in the workplace. Do you think, I mean, what, what should we be doing um, to get this higher up on the agenda? I mean, you, you talk about the US. Um, you know, it, it, that it's almost like you're saying having no maternity. So, so women have to have uh, children if they're serious about getting climbing that career ladder and just get back to work. Um, you know, I know people who went back even sooner than three months. Um, is that the sort of thing we need to do, or are women I think having it's more as much about impact in politics? Incentives for men to play more of a part at home. I think yeah. that would have a better impact both on family life and working life. Um, and it, you know, w- women have made huge changes. I mean, I think that was part of what the package, you know, the, the historical package you had said. Women have made these huge changes. Men have to come into it as well. And I think it would be great if this International Women's Day, we also, with all the celebrations that are going on mm. and the protests and the marches and so on. It would be great to see more men out there as well. And we are seeing that. I think we are seeing more men coming forward. It's, it's lovely to see Daniel Craig fronting the film for this Equals Coalition, this International Women's Day. And I think Absolutely. seeing a few more yeah. men as the faces of the women's movement would be a great thing. Well, I think yeah. so. And in fact, I mean, I would say, well, it's a very long-term issue. I'm struck in my generation, you know, I'm in my very early 40s, that most of the men that I know, um, you know, who are, you know, um, parents, they, they're definitely doing things a different way to their own fathers. There is much more yeah. desire to be involved. To, you know, the literal stuff, like, I mean, John Snow once said to me, I've never changed a nappy in my life. And, um, you know, I mean, I'm not saying he was proud of that. 40 something. He, I'm not saying he was proud of it. He was lecturing me about using disposables. And I remember <laughs> saying to him, have you ever changed a nappy? Um, but, um, but the point is that I don't think that would be true of most people no. now. And they wouldn't want to be that way. And I love seeing young couples out where the, the dad has got the baby strapped. I know it sounds sort Sort of mm. obvious, but you didn't see that. And having more men in, in school ago. playgrounds doing sort of dropping Definitely. off and picking up. I mean, it's slow. It's starting to change. I mean, I would say there's one negative issue, and I, I always worry that, you know, in the words of one of the women on, on the list who, who I, I'm very much a supporter of, you know, Susan Faludi, who talked about the backlash uh, against feminism. There is this issue of when you have this push to get women working and you have to work full time that that move to push parenting onto you know poorer women and this idea that motherhood and parenthood is a kind of commodity and there's that whole phenomenon of you know latino and hispanic women in, in coming into north america um or filipino women um, and eastern european women coming into western europe and often leaving their children often at home. leaving their own children were then brought up you know in, in, a, in a much less satisfactory way and, and i mean people like barbara ehrenreich have written about that and this idea that you've turned motherhood into a marketable commodity I mean, that concerns me. And in a mm. time when many of, I think, you know, the Guardian's um, or, you know, readers and, and listeners and people who are concerned about globalisation are thinking about where you buy clothes from, we need to think about the cost to parenthood, yeah. about this push to somehow you've always got to be in the office. And it does bring us back to what Natasha was saying, which is men and women treating it as an issue about living a better life. But does that start, I mean, you're, are you a fan of the sort of shared paternity, maternity? Does that start with political action, that we actually need to try to change the laws mm. to get men, I mean, part-time work, oh, well, to I think encourage them to do it as well? It's vital to have changes in legislation because a lot of these patterns of behaviour are laid down for us by the rights we have to, to leave, you know. And if you have, if you're a woman and you have the right to spend a year with your child and your male partner has the right to spend two weeks, off work then obviously that's going to have an impact on your behavior but 
I think the one one of the things I've come to realise very much over the last few years is although these changes begin with legislation, they certainly don't end there. And what we have to look at is driving through the changes in the culture. And really, I think, you know, examining again our entrenched um, attitudes, the stereotypes, the traditions that are still holding back real equality, mm. both in the UK and internationally. You know, I think it is really important that we don't just look at this as we can pass another law and then everything will be all right. You know, these things, these unfortunately sexism is, is, goes bigger and deeper than that. Mm. And often we're coming up against very unconscious mm. attitudes about I- whether men can play a role in family life and whether women can mm. be the leader. You know, when going back to the inspirational women that we were talking about, you know, I think obviously Margaret Thatcher should be part of your, your 100 inspira- inspirational women. We have to ask the question, why are there so few inspirational women in politics now? You know, so long after women actually mm. got the vote and the yeah, right to hold political office. And that is so much, I think, about attitudes about sexism. But I would also say that, well, you're right, Natasha, that legislation is not an answer by itself. The issue of equal pay is fascinating because, you know, we've had a law about that for so long, um, and yet it remains a, a huge problem. And I think sometimes you need extra legal kind of incentive. And what's very interesting was mm. that, you know, um, we did have um, you know strong uh, labour movement to try and push through more um, transparency on pay. And, you know, the current government is not keen on that. There were a lot of entrenched um, interests that prevent laws actually being able to work out. And I think we should perhaps have more... Absolutely. I'm not saying the political sphere isn't important. And obviously, under this coalition government, there's a lot of work to be done. You know, the cuts are going to have a hugely disproportionate impact on women who are really going to bear the brunt I, of this. So I think, I think we have to keep our eyes always on the political. But, you know, the, the fight for equality mm. doesn't... But doesn't I think what's there. interesting here is um, we have mixed the political and the domestic, mm. which I think it has been, particularly sort of since 1948, when our historic clip ended, has been part of the debate. And one of the really fascinating things about that list is the number of really high-profile women who actually left their children with their partners, from Aung San Suu Kyi to Wangari Matai to Doris Lessing. It was a really interesting trend, just a minority, but very interesting, talking about sort of men taking a main role. Well, here are two perspectives on The Guardian's 100 Most Inspirational Women. We'll hear from Jaiti Ghosh, economics professor at Nehru University in Delhi. But first, here's The Guardian's columnist and associate editor, Madeline Bunting. I think what's interesting is that in the list, there's a a large number of women from the developing world. That reflects the criteria that we were using to select these women, which was the extent to which these women have sort of achieved against the odds. And I think what that illustrates is an awareness that the whole sort of status and place and role of women across many, many parts of the developing world is still so, so difficult that the ingrained prejudices against girls, against them being born, against them being educated, against them achieving independence, land ownership, property rights, it's still such an extraordinary struggle for many, many people all over the world. And the fact that what we now see breaking through are kind of astonishing shifts in Africa, particularly where women are finally, and it's not everywhere and it's not lots but there are women who are having a profound impact on their countries and on their peoples the first woman president of africa is an example but there are plenty of others one of the largest challenges that women face is the economic one because we are really seeing a reversal of many gains that had occurred that we're moving from more formal and more reliable work to much more precarious and unreliable kinds of activity 
And that, of course, also means reduced incomes. In many parts of the developing world, we've actually had reduced nominal wages for peace rate work, which is a big decline in terms of the real wage declines. Along with that, you have increases in food and fuel prices, which increase all other prices and make basic consumption much more difficult. The global crisis has led to cutbacks in essential health spending, and that the first impact of that is on women and girl children. So we are seeing significant setbacks in many of these features. We're also seeing the growing role of migration by women on their own. This wasn't always the case. Often women moved as part of a family. Usually the men are the ones who migrated for work and sent back remittances. We are seeing more and more women migrate for work. And this in turn means that the process of migration, usually they're not adequately protected. But of course, in many ways, migration can also be empowering. So it's a complex phenomenon. Jaiti Ghosh and before her, Madeline Bunting. Samira, do you agree with Jaiti that this migration of women and the resulting economic change is having a huge impact? I think she's right. Um, what concerns me as a journalist, I suppose, is whether we adequately cover the reality of, of that story. And I, I'm concerned that all too often we don't. And um, one issue that I think comes up again and again is so often, you know, we have stories, whether it's about health inequality or, you know, issues like, um, you know, the, the abortion of, of girl babies, which is a phenomenon. Uh, it's a phenomenon in uh, places like, you know, middle class India now. Um, is actually, it's a story that's so unpleasant in a way that I sometimes think in newsrooms, People don't want to dwell on these negative stories. It can feel Mm. like we're just doing negative stories about women and violence and so on. Um, And I don't have a solution. I'm just concerned that if we tried and we kidded ourselves that news coverage aims to be fair and give proportionate focus to all the relevant stories in the world, we are consistently under-reporting the economic and the sort of social picture of what's going on with women in particular in the developing world. And that's that's of a huge concern to me. Natasha, do you feel that that domestic and international feminism has become more joined up now? I think that's certainly beginning. I mean, I think it's interesting that for this International Women's Day um, today in the UK, we're seeing so many charities coming together that work both in the UK and internationally and trying to really build those links more. Um, It's always been a struggle. And, of course, we're often told, it's often implied to us, I think, in the West, that feminism is a kind of Western construct. Or luxury, even. A kind of luxury, yes. And if we talk about it in the context of the developing world or or in in context of conflict states, that that we're sort of putting something that's rather alien um, and external onto other cultures, other experiences. And I have to say that in the, the work that I do with Women for Refugee Women, the charity I founded, working with women who've come to the UK from all over the world, fleeing all kinds of persecution. It'd be an absolute nonsense to try and suggest to these women that feminism is some kind of Western construct, that they're not really interested in human rights in the way that we are in the West. I mean, these are women that have put their lives on the line to struggle Mm. for human rights for themselves and their families. And, you know, it the feminism is not something that's just grown up in the West, that women in the West are, are only are talking about. It's something that, that women throughout Africa, Asia, mm. South America are talking about fighting for. And I really think we have to respect that. We have to pay tribute to that. I know it's difficult often without sounding patronising, but mm. I think somehow those of us in the media, we have to find ways... We have to find ways of telling these stories honestly and with respect. And I think, as Mira says, we're often struggling to do that. It's very hard to Mm. find ways of telling these stories that, that feel right 
both for the women concerned and yeah. for our audiences. You know, let's not underestimate its what, difficulty. What seems but we me, can go on. What's trying. quite inspiring, I think, um, coming quite latterly to this uh, field, is how there's a sort of new wave which is not just looking at. Um, all the sort of, you know, this, the reputation of feminism in the UK and, and developing world, the developed world about sort of bra burning and women sort of moaning about, you know, the, sort of behaviour in the workplace. There are some real injustices here and lots of people feel that there is a, a link between women who, you know, need to fight for, you know, their half the sky as I agree. I mean, I have, you know, both have had positive and negative experiences about how I think a lot of people view the issue of, you know, feminism in the the broader sphere. And um, on the one hand, I think it's very positive that through more of an ethical awareness about where are our clothes coming from, Mm. you can engage potentially young people in the fact that, well, who's making your clothes in some of these garment factories? It's women and women deliberately being paid a lot less than than male workers. And this is a choice you have. And that directly engages people. And there's been some great programming um, by BBC Three, for example, you know, targeting young people who consume this kind of fashion and making that link. Um, but I'm also concerned. I did a talk at my old school a couple of years ago on Afghanistan, and I, you know, a 15 year old put her hand up and said, "Well, you know, do we have any right to tell the Afghans about you know mm. things like how they treat their women?" And you think, "Well, the Afghan women are women like us." You think it hurts less if you're, you know, abused yeah. in Afghanistan. But the fact that a, you know, a very young woman today felt she needed to ask that question says a lot about how unsure the people are now, and that they, they do think that feminism. In, it's like that whole debate about cultural relativism, that we can't criticise other cultures because, you know, women yeah. there have, have, a, have what we regard as a raw deal. And I, that really bothers me, that we yes. feel afraid to ask And I questions. think we have to be honest, though, and say that sometimes, you know, the interventions of the West, say, in Afghanistan, have made it more difficult in some ways for certain arguments to be made about... Um, the situation of women in other places and have made it more difficult for some international organisations to work in those places. So I think we have to, you know, we have to be honest that it's, Mm. you know, that Mm. it isn't easy when we go Mm. and try and talk about other cultures and other situations. But but obviously one way is to celebrate the role models that come up in these societies and the strong women that are in the forefront so that if we can show that women are fighting for their rights you know, throughout the world, then I think that is a great way of breaking through. And so attention. I think it's very important that the inspirational women you pick out, you know, do include so many women. Oh, that's that's amazing how many were from the developing world, mm. actually. And that and it's not patronising mm-hmm. for a list to, to sort of pick out names from another country. I mean, when I went to South Africa to do a film about corrective rape a couple of years ago, I met a local reporter who said, we can't get the story covered here because there's so much violence. The moment it got covered, you know, here in the UK, I got rung up by the South African High Commission. I mean, embarrassment can be a positive force mm. for, for, for feminism and for change. Yeah, and, and that whole idea is that, you know, are we taking feminism for granted here well, actually, if you look at what's going on around the world, it, it, that seems like a sort of such an old debate that we shouldn't be having anymore. Absolutely, I just think that incontrovertible facts on the ground about women's poverty, the violence they face, their lack of education globally—you know—that we can't sort of shy away from. There they are. There, you know, we have to go out. We have to deal with them as feminists. We've got to talk about them. I don't think we should be kind of silenced by the fear. Um, of, you know, looking mm. as though we're sort of bringing some Western story to the rest of the world. Mm. We are not. This story belongs to all women mm. everywhere. Feminism isn't a luxury. And I mean, even, you know, let's not say that it's all sorted here. Um, 
The Shadow Home Secretary Yvette Cooper said that women will shoulder three quarters of the burden of the government cuts, despite their income and wealth being considerably lower than men. So even here in the UK, I mean, you know, how does that work? It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Um, one of the things that concerns me, it just you know, again, in terms of coverage, is you have superficial things like both Nick Clegg and David Cameron to call their parental leave and and somehow that does say something about how yes we've advanced and parents are more involved they're of the same generation I guess as I've been talking about earlier but on the other hand we have all these challenges saying that actually the government cuts could they be disproportionately affecting women and and it's kind of interesting that you have Mm. one thing at one end in terms of PR and uh, bigger questions being asked about the impact. But it shows I think that we have to remain vigilant that we in the way you know the gains that women have fought for in this country they're not just there for all time we have to fight to defend them you know and I think there is a real danger at the moment I think that some of the the equality that we have fought for, you know, is in danger of being rolled back, both by the actions of this government, but also, I think, by the rise of sexist attitudes around us, you know, the Mm. sort of the rise of the hypersexual culture, the rise of the idea that, you know, men and men and women are women because of our biology, not because of social factors and so on. So I do think, you know, we have to be vigilant. And the role of the media in this is so important because it's so easy, you know, where 78% of news coverage, women are the victims in any story. And why, you know, it was was good to be involved in something like this 100 uh, Inspirational Women because for the first time we were actually looking at amazing stories that women have done. Um, Well, we're coming to the end of the podcast. There are more than 400 events over the next few days to celebrate International Women's Day, Um, a record, twice as many as in the US, which was amazing. Do you feel it's something to do with the sort of British international outlook? You know, why so much Yes, I think there's various reasons driving this. I mean, I think um, there has been this groundswell of feminist activism, which is fantastic to see over the last... Well, two to three years, really, I think that's really been coming forward with the, with the launch of things like the Million Women Rise March and a lot, of more, a lot more grassroots activism with, from groups like Object and UK Feminista. So I think that's helped. It's also helped, I think, this push from the mainstream charities and organisations that have come together to form this coalition for this International Women's Day, really given it a push into the mainstream, mm. which I think is fantastic. I think a lot of people are angry about what's happening in politics with this government, you know, the impact of their policies on women. And I think that that people are coming together, they're angry as well about the influence of the hypersexual culture. There feels as though there's quite a lot of debate, quite a lot of anger. And if that's seen this International Women's Day with, you know, both protest and anger, but also I think celebration too, Mm. I think that's fantastic. So what will you both be doing today? The Guardian's marking the publication of the list with a breakfast this morning before the uh, Meet Me on the Bridge the Millennium Bridge. Um, what are you going to be doing, Samira? Um, um, it's like it's like blur, really. Um, I think I'm I'm chairing a couple of events and. Um Overall, I don't know. I always find myself thinking every International Women's Day how it's a wonderful thing, and yet that old cliche of I kind of wish we didn't still need one. Um, and I also just wish all these amazing events could just be spread out a bit more, maybe over the whole year. <laughs> it's a whole women's year. It'd be great. I'm speaking at the um, at the march across the bridge, and then I'll be dancing at the Equal Soul Train to celebrate. Okay, well that's all we've got time for. My thanks to Natasha Walter and Samira Ahmed. The producers of the podcast were Ian Chambers and Pete Sale. I'm Jane Martinson. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.